Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 37 of Everything Compliance. First, a word from our sponsor, which this week is the Compliance Handbook. This one-volume compendium provides you the most up-to-date advice on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. I bring together the top ideas, the top commentators, the top techniques, and topics that you can incorporate into your compliance program, literally in a 31-day format, to more fully operationalize your company's compliance regime. It incorporates the Department of Justice's 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs and information from the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy. If you want one volume to guide you in operationalizing compliance, this is it on Amazon.com. If you'd like an autographed copy, please order one from my website, www.fcpacompliancereport.com, and I will mail it to you. This is Tom Fox. I hope you will check it out. I know you will find it useful. In this podcast, we take up an article which was in the New York Times recently entitled, Trump Administration Spares Corporate Wrongdoers Billions in Penalties. We take a look at this article from four different perspectives. Jonathan Armstrong considers it from the UK angle and asks, is the US leading losing its role as the global anti-corruption policeman? Mike Volkoff looks at it from the DOJ perspective and asks, do priorities change from administration to administration? And what does that mean for line and career prosecutors? Matt Kelly takes the same angle, but looks at it from the SEC and other regulatory agency perspective. And finally, Jay Rosen considers it from the vendor perspective. Are companies really spending less on compliance and as it or is corporate compliance as robust as ever? It's a fascinating exploration of one topic. I know you will enjoy it. The Everything Compliance Gang is Mike Volkoff, founder of of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong from Quarterly Compliance in London, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, with Affiliated Monitors. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of Everything Compliant. Today, we're going to uh, devote the entire episode to a New York Times article, which came out on Sunday, November 4th, which was entitled... Trump administration spares corporate wrongdoers billions in penalties. Uh, in spite of this provocative title, it was uh, reported lots of facts, statistics, and what we were going to do and are going to do is really take a deep dive to see if the provocative title backs up the facts of the article and everyone's perspective. So uh, with that, Jay Rosen, you have been in the vendor space, uh, specifically around the FCPA, but greater compliance world for quite some time. So I wanted to start with, from your perspective, are companies spending less money because of enforcement or are they denigrating uh, corporate culture or the types of things that affiliated monitors uh, assesses going forward? Where do you see all this really from your unique perspective? Uh, Great question, Tom, and uh, everyone, thanks for having me on. Um, I I think if we want to go back there's two data points that I want to refer to. One uh, is when we went back uh, basically a couple of years ago after um, President Trump had won the election and we did our whole big looking into the um, crystal ball to see what the Trump administration was going to bring to us in terms of 
FCPA enforcement. And that ended up being an ebook that we published. And what we talked about at that point was that the folks who work in the DOJ and the SEC are really uh, career prosecutors. They ostensibly do not have any political affiliation. And uh, it was going to be business as usual. Now, there are certain ebbs and flows in how uh, matters take place. And one of the things that we've seen happen this year is the uh, no piling on rule. So if you look at some of these large uh, multi-billion dollar settlements that we've had this year, um, you know, stemming from the Operation Car Wash and things like that, you know, there may not be the individual um, charge coming from the DOJ or the SEC, but I think more of those penalties that have been collected are actually getting paid to the jurisdictions where the bribery initially uh, commenced. So that's, you know, point one, I would say, is that these companies are still being prosecuted, but the money is going elsewhere. Uh, the second thing that has been of note and that we've spoken about over the last couple of weeks is the uh, recent Benkowski memo that was taking a look at, you know, the concept and the construct of monitoring, which is what we do at Affiliated Monitors. And basically, to summarize Benkowski, is that um, if you are going to self-report to the DOJ and you're going to have an assumption of a declination, pretty much you will also have an assumption that a monitor will not be uh, one of the remedies to what you're doing when you're settling with the government. Um, in terms of what we're seeing now, and to specifically like look at SCCE, where we were all together briefly in Vegas several weeks ago, is that I had at least three meetings that stemmed from the conference where people were coming to us to talk about doing uh, a, a, a self-initiated ethics and compliance assessment. And they were companies that were not under any type of agreement. They were companies that did not have any corporate malfeasance, but they were folks who decided that it's been five years since we've updated our code of conduct and policies and procedures, and we want to know what we can do to not only benchmark ourselves, but to take an introspective look at how we are doing at a company as a company in terms of ethics and compliance. So those companies that came to us, this was folks who have uh, you know, they have religion. They understand why it's good to take a look at their ethics and compliance posture. And furthermore, they understand why it makes sense to have an independent third party come in and do that. And, you know, to really give them that dispassionate view on how their business is. So um, I guess to, to tie up this second point is that I see uh, people utilizing the concepts of a monitor and of self-assessing and looking at internal controls. But I see that bumping up earlier into the process is either something that's more of a prophylactic nature that they want to just take care of anything that could happen, or uh, it's something about the continuous improvement, which we talk about. So from our perspective, we've actually seen this as, as a mini boom, and we think that it's going to be earlier in the process. And, um, you know, we are uh, encouraged by the folks who contacted us just at the conference several weeks ago. 
So, Jay, the part of the article where uh, Professor uh, Corneliuson, I believe, is quoted, and he says that uh, anecdotally he believes comp- compliance professionals are having dif- difficult getting funding now because of this alleged change in prosecutorial posture. That's not been the experience of affiliated monitors? Not at all. And um, no, because, uh, and I think we just like, even when I look at things that have happened, um, if you look at the Elon Musk thing with the SEC and you look at things that are happening with other boards, with Papa John's, with Me Too, with what's happening out in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, I, I think if you are not a compliance, you know, if you're a compliance uh, practitioner and you are not thinking about these things and understanding that should you end up going to the government, you only have one chance to make a first impression. So it's better to know what you've got. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to have to do your internal calculus on whether or not you're going to self-report. But I, I think gone are the days where people take the ostrich approach and bury their head in the sand. And they're knowing that they're doing business in highest regions or they're knowing that they might have potential um, weaknesses in their third party hiring. But it's better now, uh, it seems, for people to at least know what they're up against, and then they can make more of an informed decision as opposed to, you know, waiting for the story to hit the front page of the New York Times. So, Matt Kelly, do you hey, have uh, a follow-up? Uh, Jay, oh, no, no. I, oh, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say something to Jay. I think uh, this mic, and I apologize. Uh, but, uh, you know, Jay, I think what you're what you're really sort of recounting is – is that I think compliance, ethics and compliance is moving beyond, hey, we're just worried about DOJ and the SEC coming in here. I think the education that's going on in the profession and at companies is something that, that frankly, it's good business. It's, um, you know, we know the research about ethical companies making more money over the long run and sustainability. And I think what What's driving this is not so much the reaction to whether or not the Trump administration is enforcing the law aggressively or not. Um, maybe in the banking industry, that's more important. But I think people are coming to you because of the value of what uh, you are ultimately supporting, which is an ethical and effective compliance program. And people are realizing that people are competing on that in the new marketplace and that it's just, it makes good business sense to invest in it. Am I, am I missing something or do you agree with that? I I absolutely agree with that. And um, I think um, Matt had a point to uh, make. He's kind of uh, looked at some research over the past couple of weeks on um, radical compliance. And Matt, did you want to jump in with something? Uh, well, yeah, sure. I guess you know, Mike actually brought up a lot of points that I would have uh, covered, so I'll just keep it quiet that um, I think that what you're saying, Jay, makes total sense because this really gets to what I think is often the most important question for compliance when a scandal is brewing. And is it legal? Will we get a big fine or not? These days, an increasingly important question is who cares? Because it is much more about um, perception of misconduct and reputation risk among your many other stakeholders. The regulators are one, and they can get people fired and imprisoned and fined, so they're an important stakeholder. But 
we are, I think, increasingly going to see more and more other stakeholders wielding enormous attention over the board's mind. And the board's the one who turns around to compliance officers and says, yes, here's a big check. Yes, invest in this. No, don't do this. No, we don't think it's important. They make those decisions and you follow through on what those decisions are. That's your job, whether you're an audit or compliance or risk. And more and more stakeholders are going to be able to exert pressure by other means than a regulator showing up with a fine. So, yes, boards know this, and therefore they're still thinking more in these terms of let's make sure we have compliance as a, a prophylactic against that. And some other day we can get into all the business advantages, which are very real, but that's really what's going on. So, Jonathan Armstrong, the uh, obviously sitting from your perspective across the pond, um, do you see this article in the larger context of perhaps the U.S. stepping back from its role as the leader in global anti-corruption enforcement? Uh, will other countries step up? Uh, obviously, we've had sharing of fines and penalties, certainly with the United Kingdom in the Rolls-Royce case. We had Sapontu and uh, other laws passed in the, the in Europe. And just uh, this week, we had um, SFO Director Lisa Osofsky uh, talk about uh, increased enforcement, perhaps some big cases coming out of the SFO and warning, wanting companies to step up, uh, self-report and, and work with the SFO. What does really all of that portend from uh, the home of common law? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. And, and I think you've covered a lot of the issues already. Um, what I, I think we tend to see, I had a number of interesting discussions at SCCE about this. I, I've got a working theory that sometimes regime change is signaled by a change in bribery enforcement rather than in Shakespeare's day, stabbing all your relatives in the back. And, uh, and maybe there's evidence of that in Saudi Arabia, in Nigeria, for example, where the incoming government starts to prosecute people in the outgoing government for, for bribery offences. And in that context, maybe the Trump move is even more unusual that quite often an incoming new regime wants to signal that it's getting tough on bribery rather than a perception that it's getting less tough. You know, nobody stands on a pro-corruption ticket, do they? Um, and, and so that element, I think, is somewhat surprising. And then, of course, the Rolls-Royce that you mentioned, one of the reasons for pushing the DPA through was to do it under the Obama administration, where it was perceived there was greater certainty rather than under the Trump administration. And whilst the minority of the settlement went to the US government uh, rather than the majority there, one wonders if there aren't uh, occasional moments when people at Rolls-Royce wonder if they made the correct jump, particularly given what the article says is a possible outcome of the Walmart case, which was one of the big cases kicking around uh, at, at that time. And I'm sure that Mike and others are better qualified to, to discuss that than me. Um, but I think to answer your other question, I, I, I think last time I looked at the 
bribery enforcement action tables, it was US uh, at the top of the league, you know, with very much clear water between the UK in second and Canada in third. I think the UK and Canada is still uh, trudging along. You're right that Sapanda has had an impact. Uh, it's had an impact, I think, in two respects. Firstly, I think it is now easier for multinationals to make things like whistleblower lines stick because of the uh, slight cultural changes in France, where uh, Sapanda itself has uh, whistleblower reporting mechanisms. But I also think we've got some fairly major cases that France is looking at uh, at the moment. I talked of some of those at uh, SCCE, but I think it's definitely watched this space on Sapanda enforcement. One of the businesses uh, accused in one of the early Sapanda enforcement actions reckons that the investigation might take around 10 years. So uh, that might be a measure of how confident they are in the velocity with which the French authorities approach these things, or it might uh, be indicative of the complexity of the case. But I think there is certainly a bigger appetite uh, to, to prosecute in France. We've also, Scandinavia, for example, there's some uh, very large investigations there at the moment, which I know have been very impactful in that part of the world. And, and, and you know, Scandinavian prosecutors, I think, have always pulled pulled their weight. And as you said, Brazil with uh, Lava Jata, the car wash investigations that I think Jay mentioned, and uh, Zelotes, the, the Zealots investigation, um, uh, are, if you like, the new kid on the block. So we are certainly, um, um, and, and then Asia, we could look at, um, uh, at some of the investigations going on there that are pretty large and again are involving cooperation with the US. So I, I think in summary, the US certainly is not the only sheriff in town anymore. And I think more uh, countries are taking an active interest in bribery prosecution. And some of those that you don't necessarily see in the headline cases, like Switzerland, for example, are cooperating with other authorities to bring their um, cases uh, to court or to settlement. But in some respects, one of my uh, concerns, Tom, to sort of throw into the panel is um, as an outsider looking in, the history of corporate prosecution of bribery in the US has been one of surrender, not of victory. And what I mean by that is there are very few, as I understand it, cases against corporations that have gone to trial in the US. The US authorities have always had this um, uh, almost like a, a, a poker player at a table type approach of saying, we've got a great hand, we've got a great hand, we've got a great hand. They've never actually had to show it in court. They've always been able to persuade the corporation that their hand is good enough that the corporation should fold. And the difficulty, I think, in the longer term 
if this article is correct, is that that ability to bully, encourage, uh, force corporations to settle cases is diminished if you think that the guy on the other side of the table isn't tough enough or is bluffing. And that might well be the long-term consequence of uh, of this type of uh, of statistical analysis, that it might mean that U.S. corporations don't invest, it, despite what Jay's saying, but also that occasionally they have a feel-lucky punk to the U.S. authorities, and then we might see more cases and more contested enforcement actions. And I wonder if the success rate will be as high in court as it is with surrender. My response to that is I, I don't think it's really a poker game in the, in the way. I mean, I would like to think that there's a threat to go to trial, but there's never a threat to go to trial. What really I think is going on, Jonathan, is that it matters where the government uh, wants to get to. What's the final result that they want? And the question that's raised by the New York Times article is whether or not, unlike the Obama administration, the Trump administration is saying, instead of paying us $5 billion or $2 billion, just pay us $1 billion, uh, and that's it. The company itself, um, for whatever reason, you know, there's been lots of debate about the Enron case uh, and then, uh, and not even the Enron, the, uh, what was the, uh, the accounting firm, Arthur Anderson case, yeah. where, you know, 300,000 people or however many thousand lost their jobs as a result of a criminal prosecution. And there's a debate over whether or not, um, you know, going to trial against these companies and convicting them at trial uh, will result in more harm to the employees and to society than the, the value of the criminal prosecution uh, and the conviction. And I think that there's a real uh, legitimate debate about that. Um, and it just has led to this situation where everything is negotiated and nothing is tested in court, uh, except when you have individuals who are prosecuted. And, um, and, and I think it's really a question of attitude and it's a question of priority. Um, you know, let's go back to what the New York Times article really, I mean, the, the three big findings from it. One, it's also a comparison that's done of the first 20 months of the Trump administration against the last 20 months of the Obama administration. And in some respects, I believe that's apple to, apples to oranges in the sense that when, a, when an administration is leaving they're going to try to, and particularly the Obama administration, because they knew there was going to be a big change. We had a record year in terms of FCPA enforcement because they had a ton of settlements that occurred at the end of the administration. But even despite the apples and oranges issue, there's absolutely, I think, a difference in attitude. So, and uh, the difference in attitude is, uh, you know, instead of forcing Barclays or uh, Royal Bank of Scotland to pay a penalty that's commensurate with what other banks had to pay for their mortgage failures. These guys absolutely started at lower numbers. 
the Trump administration did, and they negotiated lower numbers. I don't think it's because of the piling on policy. I don't think it has to do anything with that. It's just we're not going to be as tough. And the Obama administration, I think, had a tougher attitude towards corporations in general. Um, I also think the SEC's priorities are changing. Uh, and I'd be curious to see what people think. But the, they said there was a 70, the, in the article, it says there's a 72, 62% drop in penalties imposed and illicit profits. Um, and that means, uh, you know, disgorgement. Uh, from to 1.9 billion from 5 billion under the Obama administration. Now, I think that's significant. The, uh, I also think, uh, the 72% drop in corporate penalties from three to 3.93 billion from 14.15 billion is significant. Uh, and there's been an absolute lighter touch when it's, uh, occur, you know, in terms of enforcement against the banking industry. And I think this is an attitude. I think it's an attitude and I think it's a problem in the sense that, um, companies are definitely getting a better deal. Uh, there's just no question about it. And I think when Republicans come in, uh, I think they sometimes will get a better deal. And, uh, in terms of, uh, corporate enforcement. I think let's go back to the SEC for a second. I mean, in fairness, we've had the Kokesh decision on disgorgement and the inability to go back more, you know, the statute of limitations being held applicable to the five year period for disgorgement has definitely had an impact on the SEC's ability to extract certain penalties uh, for disgorgement. On the other hand, look at their priorities. They're spending a lot more time on virtual currency prosecutions. They're bringing fewer cases, I believe, in the sort of massive accounting type of, of problems. And I think that this SEC is absolutely less enforcement-minded, and I think we expected it, not in the FCPA area, but in other areas. Um, and what do they cite in, in a, you know, to say we're being tough? They say, well, against Tesla, we were tough. And Elon Musk, who is just, you know, obviously off his medication. And number two, in the Theranos case, we got a 50, you know, whatever million dollar settlement. And frankly, I thought the, the penalty there was light, given the fact that the two principal individuals involved in that scam were given criminal penalties, you know, were charged criminally. So I'm not that impressed with the SEC's rationale, nor the SEC's sort of enforcement approach. And I think the Obama administration clearly was more aggressive. I also think that the banking industry in particular, we've had a relaxation of uh, of the um, Wall Street Reform Act, the Dodd-Frank Act, that was put into place. And that's reflective of the same attitude that uh, has permeated uh, enforcement, I think, against the financial institutions. And I think that to me is the biggest danger point. Not that, you know, Jay Rosen, uh, and affiliated monitors, they could be busy 24 seven in the banking industry. And the problem is that I think the banking industry is, we're headed down another path here that's ultimately 
once this economy slows down, could lead to serious problems like we had in 2008 and 2009. But backing up even more historically for a second, look, the Obama administration got criticized, and I think rightfully so, for not going after people in the financial industry, given the financial crisis in 2008 to 2009. And I think historically they are going to go down uh, correctly in a negative light for their failure to go after individuals. And I know we once talked about the book, The Chicken Shit Club by Jesse Ettinger, but that to me is really lays out the endemic problem that started with the Obama administration uh, with the outsourcing of criminal prosecutions and now is culminating with the Trump administration where they're just handing out lighter sentences. And that's what they've decided to do. And Jonathan, I think you raise a really good point in that the SFO and other countries are going to take up, I believe, some of the slack in this area. I think the SFO is priming itself and hopefully to do more of what I think is in the public interest than the Trump administration is going to do when it comes to these types of risks. I've already noticed, and I'm sure you're more than well aware of it. I mean, I think the hiring of Lisa, I don't know how to pronounce her name correctly, Osofsky, but to me, it's an interesting choice to bring over a person who knows the American enforcement system to run the SFO as if to say, you know what, we need people, we need the people who are not in vogue right now with the Trump administration to come over here and be uh-huh. more aggressive. And that's, I, and I don't know if you sense that there, but I sort of feel like the, the Brits, uh, rather than us usually following the Brits in history, I think the Brits are taking up, are preparing themselves to take up some of the slack. They brought more cases against individuals, uh-huh. and I think they're getting ready to You know, they put in place a meaningful DPA, Deferred Prosecution Authority process. I think they're on their way. But that's sort of my my hope is that that you guys, it means more business and we're going to, for you guys, but it means, you know, Affiliated Monitors is going to have to set up a UK, you know, outpost in uh, in London and, uh, and start to help companies there. I just think it's as long as the Trump administration continues down this path, it's, uh, I think, going to be uh, up to other countries to do that. I'm, I hear more now from people in Brazil on yeah. anti-corruption issues than we ever did before. They're more interested in compliance than some of the, the, the people subject to jurisdiction here. So, anyways. No, I, I, think that's I, a great, I, I think that's a great point. And I think if you're – I mean, it's it, – I think it's the case, isn't it, that if you're if you're a school kid and it's the local policeman that's prosecuting you, that's somehow um, maybe I'm giving too much away here or warning you. Then, <laughs> then, that, then that's somehow yeah. more more effective than than somebody from a million miles away. And I think it's the same with bribery and, and corruption as well. In some respects, it is better if the French authorities prosecute French corporations so that they know that this isn't some, you know, foreign regulator that happened to look into the into what they were doing, but it's a local regulator that is always looking at what they are doing. So from a public policy point of view, 
it's it's better that the uh, you know that that sins are dealt with with locally and and I think I sense that there is a change in regime at the SFO there were certainly rumors in the early years of Sir David's uh tenure that relationships with the US were were somewhat frosty um there are rumors that there that, that that is one thing that will change of course the new director was a secondee in to the SFO from the US administration uh, briefly I believe so you would think that this that 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 cooperation is part of her agenda she says it is we've we've looked at some of her early speeches wh- where she said that but equally i think it is a global game now you know if you look at rolls-royce there are maybe 12 different jurisdictions from the top of my head involved so there's the three that get the money and another nine or so that provide information and cooperation. And some of yeah. these international corruption rings are truly complex. So it is going to need a, a, a team to unearth them. But, you know, Jonathan, what I, I always point to the model for what anti-corruption is, enforcement globally is going to look like eventually is going to be, you look to the way that antitrust cartel investigations occur nowadays. So a company goes in and they seek leniency in the United States and they end up having to get leniency and dealing with jurisdictions all around the world. I mean, I remember getting up early for, I had a witness who had to be interviewed by the New Zealand authorities with regard to uh, cartel activities that impacted their business, uh, their economy in New Zealand. And I think the future is, you know, the leniency program started in the 90s. And I always cite this, that for every company that co- uh, pleads guilty or cooperates, three individuals end up being prosecuted. And and I think that for a company that's going to engage in, you know, decides to seek a leniency in a cartel case, they end up having to go to Brazil. They end up having to go to Asia. They end up, you know, to, to all the antitrust authorities who started this sort of cooperation routine going back to the 90s. And it, bec- it becomes mature after a while such that a company has to literally go and seek leniency and negotiate settlements with uh, governments all around the world in the global economy and in cartel activity. And I think that's where we're headed with anti-corruption enforcement. And, you know, people are mature, their systems are becoming more mature and cooperation is absolutely critical among the jurisdictions. But you look, the United States has a great relationship with Brazil law enforcement, one of the best in the world, as well as with the UK. I mean, there may be moments of sort of jealousy or, you know, difficulties. But in the end, the UK and, and the US have always worked closely together in law enforcement issues. So that's kind of where I see it happening. And I just see the UK probably going to pick up some of the slack. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to make one other quick, quick point, if I could, Mike, and I was short on time. But um, I, I mean, one potential consequence, of course, could be that the UK gets tougher on US corporations 
And we've already had, mm. it, it, it's a case that's emerging at the, at the moment, and we oughtn't to say too much about it, but we already potentially have a sign of that with uh, K, KBR. When uh, they were talking to the SFO, the UK operations were talking to the, to the SFO, the SFO invited the general counsel and the uh, chief compliance officer over to London for a chat and serve proceedings on them in their capacity, not only as representing the UK corporation, but also the US. So for corp US corporations, they might need to watch their strategy because if the SFO perceives that the US regime ain't going to deal with stuff, we might see more of that where the UK is inviting people to chat and then trying to effectively bring them into the UK jurisdiction for the US parents as well. So, so just a quick, quick point to watch, I wonder. So, um, Matt Kelly, coming in from the bullpen here with the right-handed closer, uh, what do you see? Uh, you really have focused on uh, regulatory, the SEC, and other aspects mm -hmm. of the administration. But uh, what do you see from uh, your perspective on regulatory bodies that might interest you? Well, you know, I'll start large and then work my way specifically to the SEC and its enforcement theories. Um, you know, on one level, I can see the, the logic behind the Trump administration's philosophy of smaller penalties on corporations. The logic being that shareholders are paying the penalties. Shareholders didn't really participate in that misconduct. Yes, there's the argument that they receive some of the benefits of it through higher share prices and higher revenues when people were fixing contracts or bribing or whatever. Um, you know, shareholders change all the time. You know, who was the shareholder when the misconduct was happening? Who's the shareholder today when the penalty is due? They're different people. So I can see the logic saying, why impose a large corporate penalty? Because it enforces against the wrong target. Um, I don't always agree with that, but I see where it's coming from. My issue with the Trump administration is that, in theory, if you want to focus on the right target, which would be executives coming uh, who are committing the misconduct, then you shift your resources from corporate penalties to individual prosecutions. But what's, I think, really happening is several other conservative priorities are converging here to make that part of it, and now we'll go after individuals. That part of it is withering away. Uh, to some extent, because frankly, the um, the Justice Department, number one, is operating under uh, difficult budgets and you do not get paid a whole lot as a federal prosecutor. Um, and then also uh, Jeff Sessions and whoever our next attorney general might be, um, clearly Jeff Sessions had different priorities rather than going after individuals for corporate misconduct. He wanted to devote all his time to chasing illegal immigrants and cracking down on drug cartels and things like that. So a lot of the resources that you would maybe use to pursue against individuals are being redirected or they're not there because uh, the Justice Department is underfunded for the job that we want it to do. Um I have always been struck. Uh, you know, we mentioned the chicken shit club earlier this hour, and we've all seen all of the complaints about enforcement in the Obama administration. The complaint was always 
Look at that big mess of the financial crisis. And nobody went to jail. No body, no person. Nobody really was running around saying, and no big bank got busted up. I know Elizabeth Warren would like some of those things, but that really was not a big cry out for justice was no big corporate penalties. No big bank got split up into small banks. It was always nobody went to jail. Okay. Clearly, I think the public at large, given the choice between big corporate penalties or throwing corporate wrongdoers in jail, one or the other, they'd want to go after the wrongdoers. So I personally am not that hung up over a decline in penalties if we are going to have considerable serious mechanisms to hold corporate individuals accountable. Um, And that's where I start to get also a little bit more fussy or I, I guess unhappy with the penalties that we are trying to bring to people. Because frankly, I think for a lot of especially senior executives who are committing large scale misconduct, the fines aren't really going to be enough. Um, what's missing is some way to deter them from misconduct in the future or to deter other people from doing misconduct that they see so-and-so doing. So, you know, really much more effective ways to enforce against corporate misconduct really would be a bar on serving as a director or officer at public companies, um, getting disbarred if you're a lawyer, uh, losing your CPA license if you're an accountant. Um, those kind of attacks on your future livelihood, that scares people. It doesn't scare you if you are a multi-zillionaire that you might have to pay a $5 million fine. But if you can never have any more future income again because you lost your law license or your CPA license, or if we're talking about healthcare fraud, lose your medical license, like that spooks people much more. Um, but then again, we don't have the mechanism yet for that. So I know it's a nice to have in a perfect world, but here in the real world, those kind of sanctions have to come from state-level authorities, and they can't coordinate with federal prosecution. So we get kind of stuck there. Um, another thought that does come to my mind is, you know, actually, frankly, from a chief compliance officer's self-interested point of view. Again, the philosophy of what the Trump administration says is kind of in your interest, because if they're saying we're going to alleviate punishment, but give you greater reward for cooperation and demonstrating effective compliance, that's a compelling argument for you, the compliance officer listening to this podcast, to bring to your board for more investments in training, more investments in the program, all this other stuff like that works. Um, but again, it also assumes that if you ignore all of that and then the company flouts the law anyways, well, now the Justice Department will jump on you with both feet. And like we haven't seen that yet. Um, I will give an example ripped from the headlines, even as we were recording this here, talking about let's see if prosecutors would put their money where their mouth is about going after individuals. Um, I am fascinated by Goldman Sachs' connection to the 1MDB scandal. And as we were speaking here this hour, news broke that um, Lloyd Blankfein, the now former CEO of Goldman Sachs, he's been implicated in the 1MDB scandal. He talked to those very shady people over there in Malaya who were somehow involved in this after the bank knew the 1MDB issue is this is a real problem. 
And now we're seeing Lloyd Blankfein implicated. He's probably the biggest name on Wall Street. If it turns out that there's some criminal liability or exposure there, would the SEC or the Justice Department actually go after him? Um, Now let me shift gears just a little bit because I do want to focus in on the SEC. It was interesting that within the same week of the New York Times publishing that big article looking at enforcement being lighter, the Wall Street Journal ran another story talking about SEC enforcement and how penalties are up. That's the headline. Doesn't that sound good? And what was driving it was enforcement of FCPA cases. Sounds cool, except when you dig into the SEC's enforcement data, so much of its uh, enforcement over the last fiscal year, it was driven by the Petrobras uh, settlement and the gigantic 1.78 or 83 or whatever the billion dollar scandal penalty was there if you back out petrobras from the fcp from the sec's enforcement totals actually last year the sec had the lowest amount of fines since 2009 not very impressive um but again, the SEC, you know, they talk an awful lot about what is the sense of these penalties. Um, that's not the best way to hold corporate wrongdoers accountable. Okay, SEC, I'll give that to you, except in that case, we're going to hold individuals accountable, right? And then we had at the end of September that settlement with Elon Musk and Tesla, which really bugged me because Jay Clayton, the chairman of the SEC, put out his own statement separate from the enforcement action and the enforcement press release, uh, where he basically said that the SEC had to consider the prominence and importance of an executive to the company. And if putting a severe sanction on the individual, like kicking Elon Musk out of Tesla entirely, stripping him of a CEO role, would that be so detrimental to the company and the shareholders that maybe we shouldn't do it? And then the SEC didn't do it. They only said, you have to drop your chairman title and bring in two independent board directors, $20 million fine. Again, for somebody as wealthy as Elon Musk, $20 million fine is no big deal. He could sell some stock and pay that off in less than an hour if he wanted. But like, So where is the enforcement actually going to be if we are not imposing penalties because that harms shareholders and we're not imposing against um, taking action against individuals because that might harm shareholders because they're so important to the company. Like, How do we actually enforce against wrongdoing at the SEC level? I haven't heard Jay Clayton come up with a good answer for that yet. So that's where I do have a problem. He seems to be more interested these days when they do talk about enforcement in busting up um, like bogus stock offerings and boiler room operations and, you know, the kind of penny ante Wolf of Wall Street stuff that you would see, Um, you know, really just small time uh, scam artists trying to do small time fraud on retail investors. I do not say that is unimportant to prosecute. I think it is. But it's also important to hold senior level people at large companies engaging in financial fraud manipulation, like hold them accountable too. And I just, you don't hear much from the SEC on that. And they keep on putting out statements like what they said with Elon Musk, which I just, it left me you know, rolling my eyes. If we're not finding people, if we're not finding companies, if we're not, you know, director and officer bars, because that might harm shareholders, like, are we ever going to find any way, any how to 
actually impose a sanction on people who are breaking the law or committing misconduct or just like Elon Musk, just being dumb and not up to the task. And um, so that's that's where I come down on a lot of these issues. So, gentlemen, we're running uh, near the end of our time, but I hope everyone has a rant. We heard uh, rumblings of rants in several of the presentations today, so I'm going to be quite interested to see uh, what we've got. So why don't we uh, – we had such a successful order. Why don't we keep that same order, uh, starting off with uh, <clears throat> Jay Rosen uh, and then uh, Jonathan, Mike, and finishing with Matt. Jay Rosen, you got a rant for us? Um, I, I just got, you know, uh, a sad face emoticon to share, um, within the last two and a half weeks for the events that happened at the tree of life synagogue in Pittsburgh. And then literally the next town over for me where the borderline bar and grill is. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's horrible to see innocent people slaughtered. Um, it brings it home even closer when it's the next town over and it's supposedly the third safest city uh, in the United States. So uh, I don't want to get involved in the politics of it, but I just want to express my deep sadness and my solidarity with uh, everyone who's going through such a tough time. Mr. Armstrong. Yeah, I'll amen to Jay's. Um, mine is I'm also trying to steer clear of politics. But let me make a non-party political point that I wish that politicians would stop meddling in the UK criminal justice system. I think the system is now creaking, particularly at the lower level courts. That's relevant to all we discussed before, because in the UK, as a general rule, any prosecution has to go through the lower level courts, even if it's fast tracked out of them to the, to the Crown Court. And it's the magistrates' courts that are suffering from a death by a thousand cuts. The main culprit has been uh, a politician called Chris Grayling, who's now bringing his uh, hard-to-dissect or indeed locate skills to the running of the British rail network. But he came up with genius ideas like putting the court translators' contracts up to tender, which means from people I under, uh, speak to close to the coalface, that in some cases, a translator speaking the wrong language turns up on three different court days. And each time the defendant has to be sent back to jail uh, in, a, in a truck and then brought back the next day for a Romanian translator to say, actually, the guy's Bulgarian, why have you engaged me? Um, so we've had criticism of the UK government's lack of understanding of how the world works, and that's maybe a minor reflection of it. So uh, unusually a rant for me, and a wish that the UK uh, government would stop meddling in criminal justice and give it the resources it deserves so that people can have a fair trial and so that we can prosecute the guilty without them running away through some bizarre loophole. Mike Volkoff. Well, uh, just to use a Tom Fox uh, phrase, uh, I want to give a shout out, as you say, as you say Tom, 
no matter what the results or how you felt about the election, and I know we're not talking about the election today, uh, the voter turnout was certainly uh, something to be proud of uh, for once in a midterm election. Uh, so uh, kudos to those who voted. Uh, hopefully everybody here voted, uh, and, and including Jonathan. I hope Jonathan came in and, and voted in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, but uh, uh, anyway, something good to be seen in terms of uh, our civic participation. Matt Kelly. So uh, I have neither a rant nor a rave this month. I instead would like to do an appreciation of a notable voice in corporate compliance and governance who has passed from the scene uh, on November 4th. Uh, sad news was that Evelyn Davis had passed away at the age of 89. Uh, for those of you who might be at all involved in shareholder activism, you might know who Evelyn Davis is because she was probably the loudest and most flamboyant defender of shareholder rights for 50 years at least. Uh, I had the occasion to meet her several times when I was uh, over the last 15 years I've been in this field. Um, hate her or love her, and there are plenty of Wall Street executives who probably hate her. Um, she was a vociferous defender of shareholder rights. She was kind of crazy, in my opinion, every time she stood up to speak at a shareholder meeting or an SEC roundtable or anything. Your eardrums would have to brace for impact. Um, I have seen her call senior officials at the SEC. I was at a roundtable in Washington once where she turned right to the director of corporate finance, interrupted him giving a speech and said, knock it off and don't blink your bat, don't bat your eyes at me, cutie. I know what you're really up to. She had to be in her 80s at the time when she said that. Um, and then the Corp Fin director shut up and let Evelyn say her piece. Uh, there is a photo from uh, 1971 for her obituary in the New York Times where she's standing up at a shareholder meeting in hot pants as she was yelling at some CEO for something way back then. Uh, but then also on a personal level, um, I know that Evelyn Davis, she was born in Europe in the 20s. She fled the Nazis, got captured by the Nazis, spent time in a concentration camp before she came to the U.S. in the 50s. And then she was one of the very first shareholder activists out there. She ran a newsletter called Highlights and Lowlights and published it for decades, basically just so she could to call out CEOs of corporate America and tell them when they were being fools. Um, we do need people like that. Don't necessarily know that we need people quite as loud as Evelyn was when she got her dander up, but she's now gone. She's one of those many people who make this field so fascinating and she will be missed. Well, gentlemen, as always, this has been a fascinating exploration of uh, one topic. I wanted to thank you all and look forward to uh, get us getting back together again. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. In the show notes, we're going to link to the New York Times article. I'm also going to link to some articles that Jonathan Armstrong referenced in his presentation. If you've enjoyed this, I hope you will let us know. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to do a mailbag episode. So if you have any questions for the gang, please send them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. I hope you'll join us for our next episode of Everything Compliance, where we take a look at compl compliance in the post-2018 election world. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.